Chapter Fourteen, Part Two of How I Found Livingston. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. How I Found Livingston: Travels, Adventures, and Discoveries in Central Africa, Including Four Months' Residence with Doctor Livingston, by Sir Henry M. Stanley. Chapter Fourteen, Part Two: Our Journey from Ujiji to Unyanyembe. After Mizohazy is the bold cape of Kabogo, not the terrible Kabogo around whose name mystery has been woven by the superstitious natives, not the Kabogo whose sullen thunder and awful roar were heard when crossing the Rugufu on our flight from the Waha, but a point in Ukaranga, on whose hard and uninviting rocks many a canoe has been wrecked. We passed close to its forbidding walls, thankful for the calm of the Tanganyika. Near Kabogo are some very fine mavul trees, well adapted for canoe-building, and there are no loud-mouthed natives about to haggle for the privilege of cutting them. Along the water's edge, and about three feet above it, was observed very clearly on the smooth face of the rocky slopes of Kabogo the high-water mark of the lake. This went to show that the Tanganyika, during the rainy season, rises about three feet above its driest season level, and that, during the latter season, evaporation reduces it to its normal level. The number of rivers which we passed on this journey enabled me to observe whether, as I was told, there was any current setting north. It was apparent to me that, while the southwest, south, or southeast winds blew, the brown flood of the rivers swept north. But it happened that, while passing, once or twice, the mouths of rivers, after a puff from the northwest and the north, that the muddied waters were seen southward of the mouths, from which I conclude that there is no current in the Tanganyika, except such as is caused by the fickle winds. Finding a snug nook of bay at a place called Segunda, we put in for lunch. An island at the mouth of the bay suggested to our minds that this was a beautiful spot for a mission station. The grandly sloping hills in the background, with an undulating shelf of land well wooded between them and the bay, added to the attractions of such a spot. The island, capable of containing quite a large village, and perfectly defensible, might, for prudence's sake, contain the mission and its congregation. The landlocked bay would protect their fishery and trade vessels, more than sustain a hundred times the number of the population of the island. Wood for building their canoes and houses is close at hand, the neighboring country would afford game in abundance, and the docile and civil people of Ukaranga but wait religious shepherds. From beautiful Segunda, after a brief halt, we set off, and after three hours arrived at the mouth of the river Uluasia. Hippopotami and crocodiles being numerous, we amused ourselves by shooting at them, having also a hope of attracting the attention of our shore party, the sound of whose guns we had not heard since leaving the Rugufu. On the 3rd of January we left Ululaysia, and passing by Cape Harembi were in the bay of Tongwa. This bay is about twenty-five miles broad, and stretches from Cape Harembe to Cape Tongwa. Finding themselves so near their destination, Urimba being but six miles from Harembe Point, the men of both boats bent themselves to their oars, and, with shouts, songs, and laughter, encouraged each other to do their utmost. The flags of the two great Anglo-Saxon nations rippled and played in the soft breeze, sometimes drawing near caressingly together, again bending away like two lovers coy to unite. 
The tight little boat of the doctor would keep ahead, and the crimson and crossed flag of England would wave before me, and it seemed to say that the beautiful laggard astern, Come on, come on, England leads the way. But was it not England's place to be in the front here? She won the right to it by discovering the Tanganyika. America came but second. Urimba, though a large district of Kawendi, has a village of the same name peopled by refugees from Yamba, who found the delta of the Lajori, through the unhealthiest of spots, equal to that of the Ruzizi, far preferable to the neighborhood of Sultan Pumbura, of southern Kawendi. A good chase by the victors seems to have given a shock to their systems, for they are very timid and distrustful of strangers, and would by no means permit us to enter their village, of which, to say the truth, I was very glad, after a glance at the reeking corruption on which they were encamped. In the immediate neighborhood, nay, for a couple of miles on either side, I should suppose that to a white man it were death to sleep a single night. Leading the way south of the village, I found a fit camping-place at the extreme southeast corner of Tongwe Bay, about a mile and a half due west of the lofty peak of Kivanga, or Kakunga. By an observation taken by the doctor, we found ourselves to be in latitude five degrees, fifty-four minutes south. None of the natives had heard of our shore party, and, as the delta of the Logira and Mogambazi extended for about fifteen miles, and withal was the most impassable of places, being perfectly flat, overgrown with the tallest of matete, echinome, and thorny bush, and flooded with water, it was useless to fatigue our men searching for the shore party in such an inhospitable country. No provisions were procurable, for the villages were in a state of semi-starvation, the inhabitants living from hand to mouth on what reluctant fortune threw into their nets. On the second day of our arrival at Urimbe I struck off into the interior with my gun-bearer, Kalulu, carrying the doctor's splendid double-barrel rifle, a Riley number 12, on the search for venison. After walking about a mile I came to a herd of zebras. By creeping on all fours I managed to come within one hundred yards of them, but I was in a bad spot low prickly shrubs, and tsetse-flies alighting on the rifle-sight, biting my nose, and dashing into my eyes, completely disconcerted me, and, to add to my discontent, my efforts to disengage myself from the thorns alarmed the zebras, which all stood facing the suspicious object in the bush. I fired at the breast of one, but, as might be expected, missed. The zebras galloped away to about three hundred yards off, and I dashed into the open, and hastily cocking the left-hand trigger, aimed at a proud fellow trotting royally before his fellows, and by a good chance set a bullet through his heart. A fortunate shot also brought down a huge goose, which had a sharp horny spur on the forepart of each wing. This supply of meat materially contributed towards the provisioning of the party for the transit of the unknown land that lay between us and Marera, in Rusawa, Kawendi. It was not until the third day of our arrival at our camp at Urimbi that our shore party arrived. They had perceived our immense flag hoisted on a twenty-foot-long bamboo above the tallest tree near our camp, as they surmounted the sharp, lofty ridge behind Nerembi, fifteen miles off, and had at first taken it for a huge bird. But there were sharp eyes in the crowd, and guided by it they came to camp, greeted us as only lost and found men are greeted. I suffered from another attack of fever at this camp, brought on by the neighborhood of the vile delta, the look of which sickened the very heart in me. 
On the 7th of January we struck camp, and turned our faces eastward, and, for me, home. Yet, regretfully, there had been enough happiness and pleasure, and of pleasantness of social companionship found on the shores of the lake for me. I had seen enough lovely scenes which, siren-like, invited one to quiet rest, gentle scenes where there was neither jar nor tumult, neither strife nor defeat, neither hope nor disappointment, but rest a drowsy, indolent, yet pleasant rest. And only a few drawbacks to these. There was fever, there were no books, no newspapers, no wife of my own race and blood, no theatres, no hotels, no restaurants, no East River oysters, no mince pies, neither buckwheat cakes, nor anything much that was good for a cultivated palate to love. So, in turning to say farewell to the then placid lake and the great blue mountains, that grew bluer as they receded on either hand, I had the courage to utter that awful word tearlessly, and without one sigh. Our road led up through the valley of the Logiri, after leaving its delta, a valley growing ever narrower until it narrowed into a ravine, choked by the now roaring, bellowing river, whose resistless rush seemed to affect the very air we breathed. It was getting oppressive, this narrowing ravine, and opportunely the road breasted a knoll, when a terrace, then a hill, and lastly a mountain, where we halted to encamp. As we prepared to select a camping-place, the doctor silently pointed forward, and suddenly a dead silence reigned everywhere. The quinine which I had taken in the morning seemed to affect me in every crevice of my brain, but a bitter evil remained, and though I trembled under the heavy weight of the Riley rifle, I crept forward to where the doctor was pointing. I found myself looking down a steep ravine, on the bank of which a fine buffalo cow was scrambling upward. She had just reached the summit, and was turning round to survey her enemy, when I succeeded in planting a shot just behind the shoulder-blade, and close to the spine, evoking for her a deep bellow of pain. "'She is shot! she is shot!' exclaimed the doctor. "'That is a sure sign you have hit her.' And the men even raised a shout at the prospect of meat. A second, planted at her spine, brought her to her knees, and a third ended her. We thus had another supply of provisions, which, cut up and dried over a fire, as the Wangwana are accustomed to do it, would carry them far over the unpeopled wilderness before us. For the doctor and myself we had the tongue, the hump, and a few choice pieces salted down, and in a few days had prime corned beef. It is not inapt to state that the rifle had more commendations bestowed on it than the hunter by the Wangwana. The next day we continued the march eastward, under the guidance of our Kirangozi, but it was evident, by the road he led us, that he knew nothing of the country, though, through his volubility, he had led us to believe that he knew all about the Ngondo, Yamba, and Pumburu's districts. When recalled from the head of the caravan, we were about to descend into the rapid Logiri, and beyond it were three ranges of impassable mountains, which we were to cross in a north-easterly direction, quite out of our road. After consulting with the doctor, I put myself at the head of the caravan, and followed the spine of the ridge, struck off due east, regardless of how the road ran. At intervals a travelled road crossed our path, and after following it a while, we came to the ford of the Logiri. The Logiri rises south and southeast of Kakunda Peak. We made the best we could of the road, after crossing the river, until we reached the main path that runs from Kara to the Nagando and Pumbura, in southern Kawendi. 
On the ninth, soon after leaving camp, we left the travelled path, and made for a gap in the area of hills before us, as Pumbura was at war with the people of Manya Misenga, a district of northern Kawendi. The country teemed with game, the buffaloes and zebras were plentiful. Among the conspicuous trees were the hyphenae and borassus palm-trees, and a tree bearing a fruit about the size of a six-hundred-pounder cannon-ball, called by some natives mabaya, according to the doctor, the seeds of which are roasted and eaten. In the Kiswahili tongue, mabaya, mabaya, baya, mean bad, unpleasant. They are not to be recommended as food to Europeans. On the tenth, putting myself at the head of my men, with my compass in hand, I led the way east for three hours. A beautiful parkland was revealed to us, but the grass was very tall, and the rainy season, which had commenced in earnest, made my work excessively disagreeable. Through this tall grass, which was as high as my throat, I had to force my way, compass in hand, to lead the expedition, as there was not the least sign of a road, and we were now in an untravelled country. We made our camp on a beautiful little stream flowing north, one of the feeders of the Rugufu River. The eleventh still saw me plunging through the grass, which showered drops of rain on me every time I made a step forward. In two hours we crossed a small stream, with slippery, cyanitic rocks in its bed, showing the action of furious torrents. Mushrooms were in abundance, and very large. In crossing, an old pagazi of Unyanwezi, weather-beaten, uttered in a deplorable tone, My kibuyu is dead, by which he meant that he had slipped, and in falling had broken his gourd, which in Kiswahili is kibuyu. On the eastern bank we halted for lunch, and after an hour and a half's march arrived at another stream, which I took to be the Matambu, at first from the similarity of the land, though my map informed me that it was impossible. The scenery around was very similar, and to the north we had sighted a similar tabular hill to the Magdala Mount I had discovered north of Imrera, while going to the Malagarazi. Though we had travelled only three and a half hours, the doctor was very tired, as the country was exceedingly rough. The next day, crossing several ranges, with glorious scenes of surpassing beauty everywhere around us, we came in view of a mighty and swift torrent, whose bed was sunk deep between enormous lofty walls of sandstone rock, where it roared and brawled with the noise of a little Niagara. Having seen our camp prepared on a picturesque knoll, I thought I would endeavour to procure some meat, which this interesting region seemed to promise. I sallied out with my little Winchester along the banks of the river eastward. I travelled for an hour or two, the prospect getting more picturesque and lovely, and then went up a ravine which looked very promising. Unsuccessful, I strode up the bank, and my astonishment may be conceived when I found myself directly in front of an elephant, who had his large, broad ears held out like studding sails, the colossal monster, the incarnation of might of the African world. Methought, when I saw his trunk stretched forward, like a warning finger, that I heard a voice say, Sista Benator, but whether it did not proceed from my imagination, or— No, I believe it proceeded from Kalulu, who must have shouted, Tembo, Tembo, Banayango! Lo, an elephant, an elephant, my master! For the young rascal had fled as soon as he had witnessed the awful colossus in such close vicinage. Recovering from my astonishment, I thought it prudent to retire also, 
especially with a pea-shooter loaded with treacherous sawdust cartridges in my hand. As I looked behind, I saw him waving his trunk, which I understood to mean, "'Good-bye, young fellow. It is lucky for you you went in time, for I was going to pound you to a jelly.' As I was congratulating myself, a wasp darted fiercely at me and planted its sting in my neck, and for that afternoon my anticipated pleasures were dispelled. Arriving at camp I found the men grumbling, their provisions were ended, and there was no prospect for three days, at least, of procuring any. With the improvidence usual with the gluttons, they had eaten their rations of grain, all their store of zebra and dried buffalo meat, and were now crying out that they were famished. The tracks of animals were numerous, but it being the rainy season the game was scattered everywhere, whereas had we travelled during the dry season through these forests, our larders might have been supplied fresh each day. Sometime about six p.m., as the doctor and I were taking our tea outside the tent, a herd of elephants, twelve in number, passed about eight hundred yards off. Our fundi, Asmani and Mabruki Kisesa, were immediately dispatched in pursuit. I would have gone myself with the heavy rally rifle, only I was too much fatigued. We soon heard their guns firing, and hoped they were successful, as a plentiful supply of meat might have then been procured, while we ourselves would have secured one of the elephant's feet for a nice delicate roast. But within an hour they returned unsuccessful, having only drawn blood, some of which they exhibited to us on a leaf. It requires a very good rifle to kill an African elephant. A number eight bore with a Fraser's shell, planted in a temple, I believe, would drop an elephant each shot. Faulkner makes some extraordinary statements about walking up in front of an elephant and planting a bullet in his forehead, killing him instantly. The tale, however, is so incredible that I would prefer not to believe it, especially when he states that the imprint of the muzzle of his rifle was on the elephant's trunk. African travellers, especially those with a taste for the chase, are too fond of relating that which borders on the incredible for ordinary men to believe them. Such stories must be taken with a large grain of salt, for the sake of the amusement they afford to readers at home. In future, whenever I hear a man state how he broke the back of an antelope at six hundred yards, I shall incline to believe a cipher had been added by the slip of a pen, or attribute it to a typographical error, for this is almost an impossible feat in an African forest. It may be done once, but it could never be done twice running. An antelope makes a very small target at six hundred yards' distance, but then all these stories belong by right divine to the chasseur who travels to Africa only for the sake of sport. On the thirteenth we continued our march across several ridges, and the series of ascents and descents revealed to us valleys and mountains never before explored, streams rushing northward swollen by the rains, and grand primeval forests, in whose twilight shade no white man ever walked before. On the fourteenth the same scenes were witnessed, an unbroken series of longitudinal ridges, parallel one with another and with Lake Tanganyika. Eastward the faces of these ridges present abrupt scarps and terraces, rising from deep valleys, while the western declivities have gradual slopes. These are the peculiar features of Yukawendi, the eastern watershed of the Tanganyika. In one of these valleys on this day we came across a colony of reddish-bearded monkeys, whose howls or bellowing rang amongst the cliffs as they discovered the caravan. I was not able to approach them, for they scrambled up trees and barked their defiance at me, 
then bounded to the ground as I still persisted in advancing, and they would have soon drawn me in pursuit if I had not suddenly remembered that my absence was halting the expedition. About noon we sighted our Magdala, the grand towering mount whose upright frowning mass had attracted our eyes, as it lifted itself from above the plain in all its grandeur, when we were hurrying along the great ridge of Rusawa towards the Crocodile River. We recognized the old mystic beauty of the tree-clad plain around it. Then it was bleached, and a filmy haze covered it lovingly. Now it was vivid greenness. Every vegetable, plant, herb, and tree had sprung into quick life, the effect of the rains. Rivers that ran not in those hot summer days now fumed and rushed impetuously between thick belts of mighty timber, brawling hoarsely in glades. We crossed many of these streams, all of which are feeders of the Rugufu. Beautiful, bewitching Yukawendi! By what shall I gauge the loveliness of the wild, free, luxuriant, spontaneous nature within its boundaries? By anything in Europe? No. By anything in Asia? Where? India, perhaps. Yes, or say Mingrelia and Imericia. For there we have foaming rivers, we have picturesque hillocks, we have bold hills, ambitious mountains, and broad forests, with lofty, solemn rows of trees, with clean and straight stems, through which you can see far lengthy vistas, as you see here. Only in Yukawendi you can almost behold the growth of vegetation. The earth is so generous, nature so kind and loving, that without entertaining any aspiration for a residence, or a wish to breathe the baleful atmosphere longer than is absolutely necessary, one feels insensibly drawn towards it, as the thought creeps into his mind, that though all is foul beneath the captivating, glamorous beauty of the land, the foulness might be removed by civilized people, the whole region made as healthy as it is productive. Even while staggering under the pressure of the awful sickness, with mind getting more and more embittered, brains sometimes reeling with the shock of the constantly recurring fevers, though I knew how the malaria, rising out of that very fairness, was slowly undermining my constitution, and insidiously sapping the powers of mind and body, I regarded the alluring face of the land with a fatuous love, and felt a certain sadness steal over me as each day I was withdrawing myself from it, and felt disposed to quarrel with the fate that seemed to eject me out of Yukawendi. On the ninth day of our march from the shores of the Tanganyika we again perceived our Magdala Mount, rising like a dark cloud to the northeast by which I knew that we were approaching Imrera, and that our Icarian attempt to cross the uninhabited jungle of Yukawendi would soon be crowned with success. Against the collective counsel of the guides, and hypothetical suggestions of the tired and hungry souls of our expedition, I persisted in being guided only by the compass and my chart. The guides strenuously strove to induce me to alter my course, and strike in a south-west direction, which, had I listened to them, would have undoubtedly taken me to southwestern Yukonongo, or northeastern Ufipa. The veteran and experienced soldiers asked mournfully if I were determined to kill them with famine, as the road I should have taken was northeast, but I preferred putting my trust in the compass. No sun shone upon us as we threaded our way through the primeval forest, by clumps of jungles, across streams, up steep ridges, and down into deep valleys. A thick haze covered the forests, rain often pelted us, the firmament was an unfathomable depth of grey vapour. The doctor had perfect confidence in me, and I held on my way. 
As soon as we arrived at our camp the men scattered themselves through the forest to search for food. A grove of singwa trees was found close by. Mushrooms grew in abundance, and these sufficed to appease the gnawing hunger from which the people suffered. Had it not been such rainy weather, I should have been enabled to procure game for the camp, but the fatigue which I suffered, and the fever which enervated me, utterly prevented me from moving out of the camp after we once came to a halt. The fear of lions, which were numerous in our vicinity, whose terrible roaring was heard by day and by night, daunted the hunters so much, that though I offered five doti of cloth for every animal brought to camp, none dared penetrate the gloomy glades, or awesome belts of timber, outside the friendly defense of the camp. End of chapter 14, part 2